0: Hi, welcome to the Funding Blueprint, Unlocking Startup Success, presented by StartHub. I'm Cody Goff, and today you're going to learn about how much of an impact your attitude can have on your chances of getting funded. How much of an ego should you have? And how can you appear confident without appearing off-putting to potential investors? Plus, when is it okay to say, I don't know, when an investor asks you a question about your business? And when is it not? Here to answer these questions and share lots of other wisdom is today's guest, Vlad Kasaku. He's a second-time founder and is currently co-founder and CEO of Flowly Technologies, which is a data analytics platform for the private markets. If you're a founder who's looking to raise VC money, then check out Flowly for your secure document sharing. We'll talk more about Flowly later. Vlad is also a published author of a best-selling book on the venture ecosystem called When They Win, You Win, A More Human Approach to Supporting Entrepreneurship. And I had a lot of fun talking to him. So here's a conversation. I just want to dive right in uh, and and talk about from the VC side, what jumps out to you when you're looking at proposals or you're assessing a startup? Like, what's the thing that catches your attention and you're like, oh, this is a real possibility. Like, I, I think I want to sink my teeth in more.
1: Sure, Frank Cody, really pleasure to to be here on the podcast today and uh, diving a little bit deep on some of the experiences and some of the stories. Um, happy to, to start there. And I would say looking back at some of the founders where there was the most conviction in the companies that we backed uh, was really a lot of intellectual curiosity around the business at hand. Right. And I think a lot of founders are looking at uh, VC conversations and are really missing the biggest question out of everything is why is this a company worth building and why hasn't this been built before and why are you the person building it? And I think there are certain founders who think this way, that are able to articulate it properly from the very first conversation and it sticks to you, right? You have a half an hour intro call and you're like, hmm, this makes sense, let me dig a little bit deeper. And I think that's really the um, the point of the very first call. So the founders were, this jumped out, were able to do this in a probably even the first five, 10 minutes of that first conversation. I can give some examples of, of some of those people, but that would be the, the blanket answer to it. It's a great answer. So, I mean, it makes sense, right? Conviction, y-
0: you know, if 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 they want your money, you wanna know that they believe in what they're doing. And they, they really, you know, they're just shooting for the moon, right? Is
1: pretty much what you're saying. It's that, but it's also the ability to have intellectualized that problem at hand for a period of time to understand it deeply and understand that there is a clear opportunity for this to build a business in. Uh, right. Like, for example, Carlos and Wasim, two co founders of Valia, one of the companies that I backed at Precede um, a while back they have spent so much time thinking about the real estate space in latin america and realized that there's an imbalance between the us which has an mls multi-listing system uh, where you can go and search uh, houses compared to latin america which doesn't have one so they figured out a very unique way to create a workflow automation tool that generates the data that they need to create a mini mls for latin america and that is a very unique insight that you only get by truly understanding the incentives of all the players in the ecosystem and understanding that there is actually a way to make this work um, versus founders who have maybe like a surface level understanding of their business, which may surprise some listeners, but there's a lot of founders who don't really truly understand their business.
0: That's, that's really interesting. I, I have uh, met a couple founders who have developed products for industries they're not part of. Uh, sometimes I think, do you, I mean, I'm wondering from your perspective, do you ever see benefit? Like, let's say I, I'm a, a healthcare data interpreter and, or mm-hmm. programmer, and I do big data analytics for a healthcare company. But then I want to do something like create a video platform for consumers, or uh, or maybe do something in the insurance space. So I've got that like data background, but I'm moving into a new space. So you know, when that happens, you'll get some ideas that may not come from people native to the space. But at the same time, there is that
1: lack of understanding. Absolutely. So
0: what do you think? Has that worked in the past? Can that work?
1: It, it's hard to say because I haven't really backed any founders from that particular background. And um, maybe that's the answer right? Like uh, to, to, to the question. <laughs> but that's why co-founders exist, right? I mean, there's a complementarity of skill sets that is required to run a business. And building a business is hard, um, probably one of the hardest things that you can do in life, and figuring out uh, product, go-to-market, distribution, team and hiring, fundraising, clients, sales and marketing, and all those things in an industry you have absolutely no idea about, it's a very daunting task. So sure, could there be a person who has a very deep data background, a CTO-like who partners with the CEO with deep industry expertise and access to potential clients? Yeah, Absolutely. Can a person who comes from like, you know, 180 degree career change with no previous relationships in the industry may have a hard time getting off the ground. I'm not saying it's impossible, but they need probably to raise a little bit more money to hire the right people for the right roles there.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I have some startup experience, worked for failed startups and successful startups. I've tended to see the pattern of kind of, the left brain, right brain, you know, two mm. people running it, right? The really creative one, and then the more data driven, kind of down to earth, you know, ears to the ground, here's, here's how the numbers work. It, is that just like a stereotype or a trope, or do you see that happen a lot?
1: A lot of the companies that we backed or connections of mine backed have that duality uh, where you do have a more down to earth CTO, COO type and a more we call radical optimist uh, CEO, right? Like the, the ability to foresee a little bit into the future and believe that that state of the world can happen at some point and that you're gonna be the person who is gonna move the world towards there. Um, so very much so. And that's why starting a company by yourself as a solo founder is difficult because you really don't have that, uh, that dynamic where we can really bounce on an idea with someone who's a little bit different than you, but is still equally as convicted uh, and convinced that this company is going to work. So you are a startup co-founder
0: of a couple of startups. Which side of the fence do you land on?
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's a good question. I, uh, I I like to believe myself that I'm the, the down-to-earth and, and very practical guy, but I tend... Uh, to be very much uh, leaning towards product. So at Flowly, I am the co-founder and CEO of Flowly Technologies, and I here I run accounting and legal because of my educational background and product because of my uh, product expertise, plus industry experience, plus my interest in strategy and customer strategy and figure out where there's a need in the market. Uh, and in order to do that, you have to be a radical optimist because the world must change for you to be right. Then uh, you must identify some arcs of history that you're swimming with rather than against. Um, and it would be difficult if you're too down to earth to, to acknowledge that. Yeah,
0: yeah, makes sense. Um, so you, again, I, to go back to your background, you started in startup world, then went the VC route, and now you're back in the startup world, uh, if I'm understanding it correctly. So what what prompted that switch from startup to VC? And what did you find most surprising about that uh, world when you got to the other side of it?
1: Yeah, so I mean, that's an interesting story there because Technically, I started my career in VC. Right, the, the very first entrepreneurial journey was still in undergrad. We put together a very interesting company over the course of about two years, and we had to at some point make a decision: like, is this something that we want to continue afterwards? It makes sense. It, there has some traction. Um, that's where the opportunity for us to sell that company and get it acquired by another competitor uh, came to be. We end up saying no to that. You know, looking back pretty stupid decision, but it is what it is. You live and learn. Um, Because our conclusion not too long after was that we don't want to do this full time. And it's really not something we're really passionate about. And even though it makes sense and we got more traction than, let's say, the average startup at that stage, um, up to a point where someone else was interested in what we were doing, we said, you know what, this is not really um, the case. So I started my career in venture, been Uh, for a while now and then made the decision to jump back in the operator role. I've considered myself a builder um, throughout my life, been building uh, small businesses pretty much since middle school and throughout high school and then college twice. The second one was the one that actually got traction. So I've been experimenting my whole life and it felt very exciting to be able to support other entrepreneurs and invest in them uh, and provide as much value as we can to them but at the end of the day, they were the ones running day-to-day operations, and there's as much focus that you can have when you're trying to support five, 10, 15 companies at the same time. So we just made a lot of sense for for me to jump at some point back in the operator role. Yeah,
0: did did that... In, so, you know, you you left because you realized you weren't that passionate, or maybe you just didn't want it to be full-time. Does that... Has that informed... Has that experience informed your approach to what you said earlier. You said the thing that jumps out of you is when a founder's really, really passionate and they seem super bought in and they know the industry. Um, Is is part of that because you don't want to fund somebody and then a year later they say, you know,
1: I'm not that into it. I just, I think I'm gonna go do something else. Yeah, I mean, part of it is when you're getting VC dollars on your cap table and now you're committing to making a probably a decade worth investment in your company, right? You're, you're applying your strategy and aligning it with the strategy of venture capital fund, which operates in 10 year cycles, and you're getting funded, you're there for the right, right? So not just for one series of funding, but hopefully for more, and growth significantly faster than you would do if you were a more traditional business or bootstrap or some of the you know more regular SMB that are not tech related. And in order to do that, you really have to think 10 years is a long time, right? I mean, most people live, right, probably closer to 80. Uh, you're probably not doing anything before you're 20, and you probably don't do much after you're 70. So you really have 50 years worth of work time and dedicating a fifth of that to one project, like that's a that's a lot of a time. Uh, there was this uh, you know video that I saw on YouTube a while back was, there was this guy drawing this graph uh, and kind of splitting life in small pieces and realizing, like, hey, how much time we're spending on each individual thing and what really is life and its meaning, when you kind of take that perspective and you realize you want to spend 10 years of your life doing that, you may reconsider what's meaningful to you and what you really want to align yourself with. Um, and VCs must, by definition, make only bets on people who are willing to do that job. It's not a jump that a lot of people uh can do or should do quite frankly i don't think this is something that everybody should you know we wouldn't be served if everybody was building a tech startup and when you say this isn't something
0: everyone should do you mean just i mean startups aren't for everybody is basically what you're saying i would
1: say two two flavors of it right i would say startups Startups are not for everybody in general, but VC-backed startups are very much a subset of startups whatsoever, right? I mean, there's a lot of creators out there like Alex Hormozzi or Cody Sanchez who are promoting this like boring business entrepreneurship. I think there's a lot of value to that. That is a startup. uh, And I don't think a lot of young people are interested in starting laundromats or restaurants or coffee shops or contracting, uh, you know, businesses, fencing, you name it. Uh, So I think there's a lot of opportunity entrepreneurship there, and there's a smaller subset of, I want to raise VC capital. I'm committing myself to 10 years of aggressive growth, uh, which that very much takes a different skill set, similar, but different skill set.
0: So typically the VC route, I mean, you're just looking for higher risk, higher reward, essentially, right?
1: I mean, the whole model is breaking on top of the power law, so you are seeing a ridiculous um, distribution of outcomes when you really analyze it from a you know statistical perspective like it's not a bell curve by <laughs> any means of imagination right like there's one or two companies in any portfolio that are responsible for the meaningful return of that and you know VCS are looking for those outliers and I think any VC who's preaching um diversification at the core unless they're a growth stage investor where they're saying we're just investing in you know series B series C etc, is not really doing venture capital in its purest form, right? Because the VC at its core is pre-seed and seed early bets in companies that don't have yet product market fit that are hopefully at some point are going to be unicorns and return a lot of money to the fund. So founders who are, first of all, have the depth of vision to be able to see that and believe that that's a state of the world that can happen. Uh, you know, it's, it's plausible that it could work. Uh, and also have determination to run for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years to achieve that.
0: I'm intimidated by the idea of being a startup founder, because from everything you're saying, you've got to have the vision, you've got to have a, a kind of a 10-year plan. Uh, the, the multidisciplinary expertise you need to have, there's got to be management skills, finance skills, budgeting skills, team building skills, sales skills to get the fundraising. It is so hard, uh, what have you found in your founder journey to be the most important maybe educational resource or tool or, or or like, what what skill have you found honing has been the most beneficial in helping you kind of move forward?
1: I don't think there's a skill, quite frankly. I think it's a personality trait. You just have to be excited about that, right? Like you, you use the word intimidated, right? Like. If someone's intimidated by this journey, they should not start this journey, right? If someone's excited about this journey, they should absolutely do it, regardless of their background, regardless of how much expertise they've built in something or how much skill set they have, because you're gonna learn things and every single startup is different. And I've had the honor to be part of some of those journeys as an observer, as an advisor, as a supporter, as an investor. And you really, re- like, very quickly realize that there's no two startups that are the same, and every single founder is going through the same journey. It's a roller coaster. There are days uh, when, you know, you want to pop uh, a bottle of champagne and celebrate with everybody, and there's days when you want to cry in the bathroom, and it's okay. That's <laughs> literally just, what, like, what startups are. So if you're not willing and excited about that, you're not going to make... Past the first 10 crying sessions, right? You're going to give up. Um, and founders who, who are excited about it just plow through it and say, okay, we're learning, we're getting, we're hiring the right person, we're uh, learning the right skill set to overcome this problem, and we're moving forward. Uh, and we don't give up. And that doesn't come from skill set, that just comes from personality. That is an
0: incredible insight. I wanna to turn to the less incredible aspects of, uh, of how startups are, but real quick, I just wanna interject a quick, uh, a quick note for the listener before we get into the next thing. Uh, if you need to cry into the bathroom with a community of other people who sometimes need to go in the bathroom and cry, I just wanna quickly mention a resource that I think could, quickly, could really benefit you. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by StartHub. And we have a thriving startup community on Discord. It's an active community where passionate minds come together to exchange ideas, collaborate on projects, and network with like-minded individuals. So if you're enjoying this podcast, then you will definitely find our Discord server valuable, whether you're a founder, an investor, someone who loves innovation, and whether or not you're crying or celebrating uh, this week with your startup. So join us on Discord today. You can visit our LinkedIn page, Start Hub, and... Also, find a link in today's show notes and we'll start building something extraordinary together. Uh, but I do want to turn to the less extraordinary aspect. So, whether you're working with a startup on the VC side or just talking to people in your community, we talked about the things that you think are great, right? Getting excited, having passion. How about the red flags? Like, what's the thing that stands out and you're just almost immediately
1: turned off by this whole idea? Hi, Ego. I think it's a, it's a pretty easy really? answer, yeah, but not in, 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 a, in an off-putting way, I think all founders by definition have some level of high ego because they have to believe that they know something right. that is true, that not a lot of people believe that it's true, right? So there's some inherent level of confidence of saying the world is wrong and I'm right, which comes with a little bit of ego, but there's ways to manage that and showcase that differently in uh, conversations. And there's definitely been a number of highly off-putting people where they're not even open uh, to any form of advice or question because they already know the answer. And that level of too much confidence is not serving you well because at some point, as we mentioned earlier, you're going to face issues where you don't know the answer and an inability to ask for help and just hold multiple perspectives in your brain that are conflicting at the same time and analyze them, you know, kind of at cold, just won't allow you to move forward. Something's going to crack if only one person is right. Um, and you can sense that in a half an hour conversation pretty early on. And that is very much a red flag.
0: That's so interesting. It does sound counterintuitive when you first said it, right? You got to have a... You got to have confidence, but there is that fine line. But there does require, to my point earlier about how many different skills you need to have to ultimately be successful. Um, you need to have an intellectual curiosity, right? And an openness to even be willing to be proven wrong. And you just, I mean, you don't, you probably don't have like a bullet point list of things to look out for in a conversation. It. You said you can just pick up on it, like the energy in the room is just like, Right there. Was there a particular pitch you ever got on a call, and just within a few minutes, you're like, "Nah, this guy, this isn't gonna, this isn't gonna work out."
1: Several, but uh, as as VC is a small community, and you know everybody knows each other, I'll, I'll keep that to myself. But uh, happy to yeah. chat over over a couple beers. I will say though, I, I'll give a the opposite example because I think praise should be should be more publicized. Uh, it's one founder called uh, Myron. He builds a really interesting startup in Mexico called One Car Now. He is a tactical sponge. If I were to to try to to describe him in a way, he takes notes of every single question that you ask him that he doesn't know the answer to, and combines that with all the other questions other investors were asking that he doesn't know the answer to, and comes back next call or even before that with an email with properly thought out answers to that question. Him having digested all the feedback and all the points where he may not be incredibly sure about what he's building, but in a week he is incredibly sure about that part because he had the chance to uh, to adapt it. So depth of vision, 100% ego part of it, ability to listen to constructive feedback and self-assess and move forward, 110%. And that's what makes him a great founder, and he's been incredibly successful. So as a result of that. And you know that. You you, you notice that first conversation.
0: That, yeah, that's a great point uh, because a lot of people are probably afraid to have a conversation with a VC in, or, or anybody and get a question and say, I don't know. But maybe the takeaway from this should be, you shouldn't be afraid to say, I don't know. So sometimes that's okay as long as you then follow up with your due diligence and, and come back. Because it, it sounds to me like, you see that as a huge asset in this person, not a liability. So when he says, I don't know, you're not thinking in your head, all right, well, I'm done
1: with this guy, you know? All right, he's off the list, anything like that? 100%. I mean, at the end of the day, it's impossible for you to know everything, especially in the earlier stages. And if the answer I don't know is what you're building, yes, that is a disqualifying thing. If the I don't know is the answer to what is most likely going to be the best distribution channel for you to reach your target audience, I hear you. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll have to figure that out. Do you have any hypotheses around it? Have you run any tests around it? Are you at least thinking of some opportunities that you could be running uh, in the future? It's okay to not know some things, but every stage has different questions which have an I don't know acceptable answer. So I'll say that, you know, pre-seed versus seed versus series A, they'll change. Uh, if at series B you still don't know what's your distribution channel, you probably screwed up somewhere in the in the process, right? But um, it's very much an asset. And uh, I'll shout out another founder, Kevin Clausen, uh, actually had it as a guest on my podcast around successful fundraise. And one of the tactics that he said is just radical transparency. Just being okay being naked in front of an investor and saying, hey, this is, where is that? This is my thinking around certain things. This is what I know and this is what I don't know. Address the elephant in the room because otherwise someone else is gonna assume it and build up a conversation because you want a partnership. You want the other person to challenge you and then together you build something, right? Like you're not, have all the answers figured out and then you just asks for money.
0: <laughs> I love the way you said that. Uh, these are great actionable insights from your experience, uh, it's, it's clear you have a lot of really fantastic knowledge around this area. So, I want to talk about how some of it has been applied. You learned a lot in the VC world. I know you're you're more the data guy, but you must be excited enough to be really bought into Flowly. So, uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, uh, what? Why are you so passionate about what Flowly does? And of course, share a little more about what Flowly does as well.
1: Sure thing. I mean, Flowly is the result of about five years of research and understanding, trying to understand. I don't think we have understood it yet, but we're, we're making great progress around it of why do we really have bad data in the private market, specifically venture capital? And why is it really hard to build predictive models of success and workflow automations at scale, Uh, for people who are participating in this market so to you know bring it down a notch what we really do at flowly we build two products we build the product for founders and we build the product for investors the product for investors helps them screen opportunities faster so this is not a sourcing engine of any sort they're not going on flowly to find startups they use flowly in conjunction with other tools where they have access to startup information to be able to capture more of those data points, benchmark them against the industry and others, surface insights that a human would take more time than a computer uh, to figure out, and then track that opportunity from you know cradle to grave. Hopefully, you know it's not a grave. Hopefully, it's a positive IPO. Um, and at the same time, track all their coinvestor investor network and figure out where are the most synergistic introduction paths um, for them. In the sense, they can predict which person in their network is most likely to invest alongside them at what particular stage and leverage us as a source of uh, truth and suggestion, the digital analyst, if you may, around that. The product for founders is relatively simple. It's a secure document sharing platform with built-in tracking and engagement analytics. Uh, Think of a Docsend or a BriefLink, if your audience is familiar with that. Uh, We have that and more. And on top of that, we layer this network intelligence where we're able to predict the degree of interest of an investor in your startup before you even have the first call. And from there, predict what's the best way to leverage that investor and that investor connection moving forward. Um, So with time, we're building a fundraising automation tool, but in no way automating your outreach, but having a team. Uh, dedicated to fundraising that's fully digital, where you as the founder can spend more time building and less time fundraising because you have a personal assistant in a box. And the reason why we're so passionate about it is because we've experienced these problems on both sides of the equation. Nobody has solved it. Everybody who tried to build in this place is building point solutions that are by definition, not linked together. Um, venture data is siloed in 10, 15 different tools per firm. And when you look at that, and you're hiring a data scientist and tell him, hey, analyze this and help us do our job better, he's going to scratch his head because there really isn't a great place to start. So we're coming uh, and unifying all those data sources, enabling even not a data scientist to act like a data scientist and help them make better and faster decisions, which at the end just builds more efficiency in the market, allows people to be invested in faster from both sides, right? Because founders discover the best investors, um, and then investors can figure out what startups they're talking with and which are the best earlier and faster.
0: And if I'm a startup founder today, can I go check out Foley? Is it uh,
1: live yet? So right now, the product is just making its way out of uh, the open beta and uh, starting to have some of the features being gated. Uh, It really depends um, because we're running a lot of different experiments on where most of the value accrues. But in general, there is a paid plan and the free tier uh, and there's always gonna be a free tier. So you can always go to flowly.com, create a profile and start sharing it with um, uh, other investors. Uh, And if you're already using docs and there's a free alternative out there, that's Flowly. So uh, everything else is on top of that. Cool. And what did you learn
0: in your VC days that really informed the decisions that you made when you decided to go the Flowly route?
1: Flowly builds for the industry that I've been in. So by definition, there's learning about how to run a startup and learning about the industry itself. Flowly would have not happened without the experience that I had in venture because the amount of time that's being wasted, moving data points from one place to another and running analysis that could be done significantly faster, and our public markets counterparts have all the tooling and have all the system and we're really lacking behind, um, it's ridiculous. So when you're looking at how much people are paid in comparison to how much time they work on truly value add things, like sourcing decision making and helping your portfolio versus arguably non-value add things, which is moving pixels and data points from one place to another and reorganizing files and transcribing notes and moving notes from one place to another and combining research papers together. That's really the genesis of Loli saying there's value in replacing highly educated human labor with computers and allowing those people to focus on more meaningful things. Uh, and ideally, that's going to be value generative for all the venture ecosystem because more founders are going to get the right investors and more startups are going to be created if the market itself is more efficient. Um, and we decided to do that without building a marketplace, which is a really important thing. And that is an insight that we got from uh, marketplace are hard. Um, like, don't build a marketplace and really, unless you know how to build a marketplace, or unless you have some ridiculous demand and supply hack. The cost problem is real um and we just there's self-selection bias there's just so many things to marketplaces that may are, are, are not really the most e- accessible startup to start uh so we take we took the route of not a marketplace but still trying to build efficiency in the market and all of that was breaking our experience in vc
0: nice well if you're a founder uh, who's looking to raise vc money then check out flowly for your secure document sharing it's flowly.com f-l-o-w-l-i-e and Vlad, earlier you mentioned a podcast. Where can people hear your amazing podcast and where can people follow you for more amazing insights? Because you were a wealth of knowledge today, and I'm sure people want to know or they can connect
1: with you. I, I really appreciate that. I would say more recently, Instagram. Uh, you know, with uh, C-A-Z-V-L-A-D, I uh, recently made my profile uh, public and transitioned from, you know, friends and family to like the larger audience uh, because of the podcast and sharing a lot of insights from the things that we're learning there as well as slowly. So that's a that's a good place for, I would say, several posts a week, uh, but also LinkedIn, that's where I'm most active. And that's uh, Vlad Kazaku, V-L-A-D, C-A-Z-A-C-U, uh, happy to connect or follow there. And in terms of the podcast, probably for your audience, most relevant would be the fundraising debrief Um, that is available on all major uh, streaming platforms as well as YouTube if you want the video. And you may get some uh, shorts and clips uh, on Instagram and uh, LinkedIn if you're following there. Uh, but that is a podcast completely dedicated to doing a debrief of a successful fundraising round. We only invite founders who have recently raised either Pre-Seed Seed or Series A. And it's a very you know open, naked, fireplace conversation. We're not really naked. It's just very transparent um, <laughs> of how that round really came together. Because I feel a lot of people may fall into the tech crunch um illness, I would say, of everything is easy. Uh, nothing wrong with TechCrunch, but it, they make it seem that everything happened overnight. And we really wanted to demystify that a little bit uh, and dig deeper into a six-month raise and how it happened. So there's a lot of really great entrepreneurs coming there to show you how the round really came together. Um, so some people make a lot of value for that if they're preparing to start fundraising. Um. Terrific. Well, we will include links to all of that in the show notes. Which
0: basically means the description of this episode, wherever you're consuming it—YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. I'll make sure to get all those links. I may have to email you for a couple of links, but I this should be able to find most of them on my own. Um, but this was a—I thought—a compelling conversation. I really hope that our our friends in the startup community and in the Start Hub community got a lot of value from this conversation, and we'll be keeping an eye on Flowly because I imagine. Anybody checking out this show is going to be hearing a lot more about your work in the future and hopefully working with you. So thanks again for joining me.
1: This was great. Thank you, Cody. Really appreciate the invitation and hope this was helpful.
0: The Funding Blueprint is brought to you by StartHub. This episode was produced by me, Cody Goff, with audio and video editing by Sean Patel. If you're looking for sound design or audio video production work, get in touch with Sean at seanpatel.com. You can watch The Funding Blueprints on YouTube or Spotify or listen on any other podcast app. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, then please open up The Funding Blueprints, scroll down to where you can rate the show, and tap five stars to leave a quick rating. We really appreciate it. Thanks for joining and have a great week.